0: The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the brain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You see, come up to Paul Newell, he went with Danny Baker. So you silly disco to the reading Melody Baker. And singing down at Dunkirk. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Elisabeth Gaufman. Lisa is an assistant professor of Russian discourse and politics in the Department of European Languages and Politics of the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. Her research focuses on the explorations of verbal and visual enemy images through big data analysis. Lisa has worked a lot on nationalism and security in the post-Soviet space, including in Russia and Ukraine, and is currently involved in collaborative research on music and politics in Russia which will be the main topic of this conversation. Welcome to the podcast,
1: Lisa. Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: So the first question, as always, what was the first sports team you ever supported?
1: I was born and raised in Krasnodar in the south of Russia, and one of my classmates was actually the daughter of an Olympic women's handball champion. So it's women's handball team, Kuban Krasnodar.
0: I think that it's, in general, the first handball but definitely from Krasnodar. <laughs> Second, what is your favorite political song?
1: These days, I would say it's Apple Orchard by Short Paris. So it's a Russian band and they released a song in 2021 about the bloody bloom of Apple Orchard. And it's very good song to listen right now in the context of the war.
0: And then probably the most difficult one, what is your favorite political book?
1: That was a tough one, but I am going with E.M. Rose, The Murder of William of Norwich. So I must admit
0: that I know very little about Russian music, pop or otherwise. Are there any specifically Russian musical genres or subgenres, such as, for example, turbo folk, which is very popular in Serbia?
1: I think in the West in general, there's a tendency to sweep everything coming out of Eastern Europe as vaguely Russian and not acknowledging the indigenous musical traditions within Russia. For example, during the Soviet era, there was actually a lot of so-called national minorities, musical collectives that were supported by the state. And uh, you could listen to the music in Armenian, Tajik, Ukrainian, Belarusian, Georgian, all sorts of other languages, and even dance in ethnic dance ensembles. So as a kid, for instance, I used to sing in Surzhik which is a Ukrainian dialect, in a Cossack choir and one of my close friends was actually a lead dancer in a Circassian dance troupe and my sister for example sang a song in Georgian at her wedding mm. so do you want to hear how Georgian sounds like? go for it so uh, it's a very nice song called Argo it's about the Argonauts beautiful or no? try me Okay, Surzek. Surzek is a Ukrainian dialect which is spoken in the eastern part of Ukraine and it's spoken also in the south of Russia where I grew up in. So it's a very happy song about a dish. Hop moy grechaniki, hop moy mili, grechaniki,
0: That does sound really optimistic. Something yeah. that we generally don't associate with the Slavic soul in the stereotypical Western image. So you already referenced the communist period. Western music was largely forbidden, and listening or playing it was often seen as political protest. Did this change in the 1990s? Did Western music start to dominate Russian airwaves, or did a kind of Russian version of Western pop slash rock emerge?
1: So it was indeed hard to get access to Western music in the Soviet era because the monopoly on record printing was held by a state-controlled melodia label. And if you had some connections, you could get access to some good stuff. But regular people had little access to less mainstream genres. So for instance, there was even a saying in Soviet Union at some point that if you listen to jazz today, tomorrow you will sell your motherland. But there are definitely some Western performers that were very popular. For example, the Beatles were hugely popular. Although I'd say the change happened somewhere in the 80s with and perestroika era where you had a more stable trickle of western performers in the USSR you also had Michael Jackson Alton John that were extremely popular before that you had Bonnie M Bee Gees. you had a number of Italian singers that were very popular like Toto Cutugno or Albano but it also kind of depended on what your parents musical tastes were so I was growing up in the 80s and 90s so it meant that every time we took a long car trip my dad <laughs> would put up some Genesis or Phil Collins uh, or Emerson Lake and Palmer there was also Chicago. There was, yes, there was Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, that kind of stuff. And then, obviously, when MTV came up, MTV had a massive influence on musical tastes. But even before that, there was obviously Soviet pop that was called Estrada <laughs> back in the day. Singers like Ala Pugacheva was all the rage. She's still popular. And she actually now left Russia because she was her opposition to the war against Ukraine. Now,
0: there are two Russian bands that have made a splash both in Russia, but particularly in the West. And both had an interesting political connection. So the first one is Tatu, a pop duo of two young women, Lena Katina and Yulia Volkova, which had several hits in the early 2000s and even represented Russia at the Eurovision Song Contest in 2003. Now, part of the band's hype in the West was that the girls were allegedly lesbian. How did this play out in Russia, which already before Putin was pretty homophobic?
1: So the thing is that even though they were sort of perceived as lesbian in the West, actually in Russia, they were specifically positioned as queer baiting and not lesbian at all. So it was completely an act. It was orchestrated by a producer specifically Ivan Shapovalov back in the days. So they were teenagers when the band was put together and their parents obviously had to be on board with that. And they also all said at the time that it was just uh, kind of a performance <laughs> in a way. And on top of it, in the Russian culture, it's more mainstream culture. There is no such thing as being a lesbian lesbian more about like you haven't found a man to love you (laughs) so obviously that's kind of female sexuality in this regard is not considered such a big of a transgression so to say and also if you listen to the lyrics in english and in russian for the hit all the things you said in russians actually so it goes like i went crazy i went crazy i need her so, being a lesbian literally means being crazy in the song. So everybody sort of knew that it was an act, and I think that once they actually started to acknowledge that it was an act, their popularity also waned in the West. Right. Um, but the thing is that there were actually a number of very popular artists in the 90s that would be queer coded now, like Beres Maiseev or Valerie Leontiev, and there's a lot of speculation in press about whether they're gay or not. But again, this is the male homosexuality that's seen as a transgression, not the female kind. So the female kind is viewed as an act anyway, so that's why tattoo and the band name means like that woman loves this woman but it being an act where there was no not a lot of backlash in the day now
0: the second band is of course the girl punk band pussy riot which became world famous with their protest concert in moscow's cathedral of christ the savior in 2012 now various pussy riot members went to jail and some became celebrities in the west how is pussy riot perceived in russia both within the music scene and the political scene. And do you think their political protest changed anything?
1: So I would definitely recommend Eliud Borenstein's book on Pussy Riot because it really lays out the entire story of the band. But I would say that they come from a very rich history of actionist and dissident art and music that existed in Soviet Union. but it was an underground art that was accessible to only select few people in the know from Moscow, St. Petersburg. So you didn't really have a very large reach of that art in the first place. And Pussy Riot and the punk tradition by itself was also not particularly well spread in Russia as well, especially feminist. So the public had a very negative impression and perception of Pussy Riot. And there were a lot of public opinion polls at the time that actually showed that people were kind of happy that they got a two-year prison sentence. And that's why the Russian government actually stressed the fact that it was their inappropriate behavior in the church that got them that sentence, and not the fact that they sang in their punk prayer that they're begging Godmother to chase Putin away, and they're saying that Patriarch Kirill believes in Putin more than he believes in God. So this was actually the message of their punk prayer in the first place. But that's obviously not what the Russian state-controlled media emphasized at the time, and they emphasized the fact that they were um, misbehaving, that they left their children at home, that women don't run around like that, and they are supposed to get punishment and this is what the West wants us to do. They want us to fall apart and have this degrading value. So there was a lot of really uh, misogynist statements about them at the time. And there was not that much sympathy, even from some of the liberal politicians at the time. I wouldn't say that their approach changed much, because there was also already the time when Putin was doing this conservative turn. But it definitely galvanized a lot of the conservative forces in the Russian society that viewed this as an attack on them specifically.
0: It's even been claimed that Putin kind of used that event to kind of position him even stronger as a defender of Russian culture, of orthodoxy. And so, in that sense, since Putin came to power, he has become increasingly anti-Western and kind of promoted Russian chauvinism culture. How has that affected the music scene in Russia?
1: So the whole 2012 coming back to power after the Medvedev presidency, it was definitely a big watershed moment for the Russian political scene. But I wouldn't say that you could feel the same tendencies in the music scene or in the cultural scene as much in 2012. It happened more after the annexation of Crimea. But actually, 2010s were a pretty productive time for a lot of artists in Russia who hadn't left yet. And you had, for example, a lot of hip-hop artists. You had the rap battles that were very popular at the time. By the way, one of the first rap battle scenes was in Krasnodar, my hometown. not just Moscow, St. Petersburg. And I think that the state, I mean, the Russian state has always deployed a bit of a depoliticizing strategy. They have always been some kind of state-sponsored musicians. And if you listen to veterans of Russian rock music, like Boris Kribinchikov, for instance, he also mentions in interviews that St. Petersburg Rock Club was actually founded by KGB, so they could monitor all these rock musicians better. So I think that the crackdown on musicians actually came a bit later in 2018, where you had more vocal performances Against the regime against militarization of society. And you had songs openly criticizing Putin. So that's actually when prosecution opposition started and a lot of concerts were canceled and they faced harassment.
0: Right. Of course, that went hand in hand with a bigger threat to his political power in the streets. Now, there's also a strong cult of personality around Putin. Just think about the many pictures of Putin showing off his judo moves or his bare chest. Is there a genre of pro Putin music and is it popular or does it thrive because of state patronage and promotion?
1: Yes, there definitely is a pro-Putin type of music. Putin researchers mentioned this one song from early 2000s. It's called A Man Like Putin. It's a horrible song that talks about women who want a man like Putin who doesn't drink and stuff like that. There's also pro-Putin rap by Timothy. There's a song that's called My Best Friend is President Putin. It's hilarious (laughs) because they drive a Lada on the Red Square, which does not look very fancy. In 2018, there was also a song by a band called Fabrica, and the song's called Vova, Vova, where they... Pretend they all want to marry Putin, and they're all crazy about him, and he's so hot and sexy, which is very funny to watch. Frankly, (laughs) there's also this type of music. Artemy Troitsky, one of Russia's lead musical critics, he calls it "govnarok." It's like a shitty rock. So that the kind of the early Soviet rock music was very ideologically pacifist. So you had bands like Maschino Vremini, DT, Kino, they were specifically against the war in Afghanistan, for example. But in the late 80s, rock music became a way to make money, and it attracted also a lot of people who didn't care. For example, in late 2010s, you had Russian Ministry of Defense actually cooperating with one of the biggest Russian rock festivals called Nashezstria, and they even had like a mobile conscription office at that rock festival. And some of those people from the scrappy rock movement, pretty much now governmental employees who participate in the governmentally sponsored concerts in support of the war.
0: Sounds very American, actually. Of course, there's also anti-Putin music. Does this particularly come from certain genres like punk? And how does critical music spread in Russia? I assume the regular media don't give it much airplay.
1: Well, there's a very rich dissident music tradition in Russia altogether. So the way it was spread before, obviously, was through so-called quartierniki. So you had somebody play the music at a flat or a very small location. This kind of dissident music playing is still common. So you had like more alternative, smaller clubs all over the country where kind of forbidden musicians play. The kind of old-timey rock music stars—they are very much anti-Putin. Let's say uh, Maxim Pakrovsky from the band Nogusvilo. He released very critical songs since the start of the war. But actually, anti. Putin stuff comes from all genres, hip-hop, punk, pop, electronic. For example, there is a punk band called Filmy. They've been also very vocal even against Crimea annexation, which was kind of a popular thing at that time in Russia. And you have more subtle Putin criticism from singers like Maneточka. So she's more like an indie pop, pop rock style. And in 2019, she wrote this song that's called Burn, and it's about technically forest fires. But there is a line there that says, in a country of multicultures, we ran out of culture. And she actually rededicated the song now to the war against Ukraine. So there's actually a line there where she sings: Теперь зала лежит одна, как ни не души. моя страна, So it's like there's only ashes left uh, where there was a country. So my country is burning. And it was actually in reference to fires in 2019. But right now it's in reference to the war that Russia is waging against Ukraine. But also you have singers like Manisha. She actually represented Russia at the Eurovision contest last year. And I still don't know how that happened because she's definitely not a mainstream Russian musician. And her art is also very subversive in many ways. She's a very vocal feminist activist and LGBTQ activist. But one of my favorite songs that she sings is called not Slavic enough because she's of Tajik origins and she sings about discrimination of racialized people in Russia. And there's a very nice line there where she's talking about, I'm not yours here, but I'm not theirs in my homeland. It's a very nice song.
0: So we've already spoken about the Eurovision Song Contest, which as Europeans you always have to do. And at least since the Austrian singer and drag queen Conchita Wurst won the Eurovision Song Contest in 2014, Putin seems obsessed with the competition. What is his critique and what has it meant for Russia's relationship to the Eurovision?
1: Actually, Putin has always been obsessed with the Eurovision contest. And I think that the Russian audience has been genuinely obsessed with the contest as a way to project Russian great power. So it's not just 2014, it's also before that. And you had a lot of money that was poured into representing Russia on a certain level. And when Russia actually won Eurovision with Dima Bilan back in 2000s, it was a big deal. And the Eurovision that took place in Moscow, I was there at the time, it was one of the most spectacular things ever. I think it was one of the most expensive Eurovisions at that point in time. Ever. And again, this was just a way to project Russian great power. And Dima Bilan, the singer, he was actually pretty popular. He's like a typical pop singer of late 90s, early 2000s. It was another time where Putin could position himself as the defender of the traditional values that Russia supposedly is. That, oh, what kind of values does this represent? Like, this is not civilization. Russia is civilization. Like, we cannot have this. Is like this is bad for the kids. So, this whole shtick <laughs> of uh, protecting the underage children from bad influence. Because again, in the uh, in Russian culture, you have this understanding of homosexualism. So this is being a disease, not homosexuality. So you can catch it somehow by watching computer wars, for example.
0: So like in much of Eastern Europe, hip hop is very popular in Russia. Remarkably, several Russian rappers have been openly critical of the recent invasion of Ukraine. Can you tell us a bit about
1: that? So hip-hop was very popular in Russia already in the 90s, especially because of MTV. MTV was probably one of the main conduits where the kind of younger Russian audience learned about Western music and hip-hop and rap and R&B and all those more American styles. We had a lot of fans of Eminem, for example, although obviously a lot of the social criticism that actually goes with hip-hop and rap music was completely lost on in the audience because most people don't speak English and they don't have no idea what those rappers and hip-hop artists are actually singing about. But we did have like some sort of indigenous Russian, rap performance in the 90s. But the one that actually became more mainstream popular was Detzel. It was another kind of producer's project, but he actually turned out to be an artist in his own art. And he had this song that was a very light thing about a party at home. So it was about how he was calling the girls and everything, and he's alone at home, the parents went away. And so it was a very lighthearted song. was nothing about, you know, the bloody Putin regime or something like that. Unfortunately, he passed. um, And his subsequent music was extremely critical of the regime. And they even used one of his songs in my post-Soviet Russian politics class. Another very critical band is Kravostok. They actually even had a 2018 song that was called Moskva Oblast, where they were criticizing Russian militarism and disregard to human life. So you could actually listen to it now. It's like... Oh my God, this is exactly what is happening right now. You also have this movement right now that's called Russian Against War. It was founded by Oksimiron, probably the more famous Russian artist in the West. And they donated money that they earned from the concerts to Ukrainian refugees. There's another Russian rapper, Noiz MC, who was extremely popular even before the war. And actually the authorities were already monitoring him for some of the things that he was saying. Like in the song from 2021, you had some really prescient rhymes about what might happen, like about we are Russian. God is with us and we want to repeat it, but he was obviously criticizing this type of mindset. You also have Tatar hip-hop, which is pretty cool. The band is called Aigel, they're obviously against the war, but because probably Russian authorities don't understand Tatar that well, it's much more difficult to police them. And as I mentioned, Alda Pogacheva, the grand dam of Soviet and Russian pop music, she's also against the war and she's been a staple of Russian music scene for decades.
0: Now, how widespread is this? Are these protests, do they come through? How do they spread through the internet, through social media of these artists? Or is this also discussed in the media?
1: Obviously, after the war started, I mean, the full-scale war started in February, the media space closed way more, so it's much more difficult to get access to some of this music. Although the Russian authorities have not blocked YouTube in Russia, so that's probably one of the main channels where you can actually get access to the music, to the protest music specifically, especially because Spotify has left and Kontakte, which is another Russian social media website, is a bit more difficult. Although Maneточka, for example, also became famous by posting songs on social media. So a lot of performers actually get famous through social media like Otiken the Shulin band they actually got famous through TikTok so there were different ways of becoming famous in Russia but right now they're very much restricted and right now there is actually a list of band performers that is circulating in Russia so the Russian authorities have been harassing for example a band called I Speak they're actually quite popular in the West and they have like 129 million views on YouTube for their song Death No More but this song actually was seen as an insult to Russian authorities and security services back in 2018 and they have been harassed ever since. But even performers like Manija, who performed at Eurovision, she's now banned. Maneteczka is banned. Little Big, the other very famous Russian band that's also supposed to perform at the Eurovision. They're also banned. Oxymiron, Noise, Zinfira, DDT, Aquarium. So all of these bands, a lot of them are rock bands, are also banned. And now there are also reports that people are getting arrested for listening or performing music in Ukrainian language. That's kind of the state of repression you have in Russia right now. But also, even one of the cult movies of post-Soviet Russia that's called brother and brother two. They actually feature a song in Ukrainian language by Akion Elze. The song is called Kalita Benemaz. It was a extremely popular song in early 2000s in Russia. Yeah, it would be very difficult for the Russian authorities to stamp out the affinity to oppositional music because, again, you have many more channels than you used to have during Soviet Union.
0: You yeah, regularly pointed to the fact that a lot of the repression didn't necessarily start in 2022, but really already with the first invasion of Crimea and the east of Ukraine. Maybe you can say a little bit more about what the effect of that repression was for the music scene and how it has changed in the last half year.
1: I'm not in Russia anymore, so I don't know what is the exact experience of trying to listen to the music that you like in Russia right now, but there was definitely a lot of prosecution of oppositional artists, and it was a very easy pretext to prosecute them. So you had several laws in Russia that were supposed to protect the minors against harmful information. So usually if the government wanted to harass a performer, what they did is that they accused them of promoting some kind of information that's harmful for children. So let's say either drugs or suicide or something like that, so they would just accuse them of that, and then the band would have a really hard time performing, and it happened very often. Especially, it was specifically anti-Putin bands, so they were very vocal politically. But again, sometimes it was a bit harder to understand how much opposition there was in the songs. I think it happened mostly with hip hop artists in Russia. But right now, some people call it actually a soft repression where you just kind of do not get played, like you're not allowed to perform. You are not arrested, you are not banned outright, but you are not allowed to perform. And George Pariso, this band that I mentioned in the beginning, they're actually doing really interesting performance art within Russia, but they haven't been banned yet, even though they have been quite outspoken against the war, but because they're doing a critique in a more nuanced way. Although there have been a lot of people who have been very open about the way they criticize the regime and the war.
0: And Obviously, this is not just an artistic problem, but for these musicians, this is also just about profession and about being able to make money. Have bands moved away from Russia? And given that quite a lot of them sing predominantly in Russian or indigenous languages, they are to a large extent dependent upon the Russian market. Right? I mean you can't just move to the West and get a similar type of career by rapping in Russian. What is that effect? Does that mean that the scene is kind of imploding? Is it adjusting?
1: It's hard to say right now because it's unclear what happens next. But yes, a lot of critical collectives have left. Some of them already had some links in the West. So it's obviously easier for them for bands like Little Big, who has, I don't know, 300 million views on YouTube. So it's easier for them, for instance. It would be more difficult for, as you mentioned, the kind of indigenous groups. But again, there's more appetite for ethnic uh, music as well. So maybe they will be able to make it. At the same time, there definitely is some appetite for music in the post-Soviet space. Although I think that Russia's war against Ukraine definitely contributed to the fact that nobody would want to learn the language, listen to the music or anything like that, because it's just so awful what Russia is doing to Ukraine. But at the same time, it's hard to say what happens next, because I think a lot of those performers are hoping that the regime will fall, (laughs) frankly, so uh, they will be able to come back and continue performing. And a lot of people have read that I'm not doing any art until Putin is in power. So a lot of artists have actually said something to the effect of that.
0: That might still take a while, though. So finally, what is the greatest misunderstanding about the relationship between politics and music in Russia?
1: I think that the biggest misunderstanding is that there is not just Tchaikovsky and Rachmaninoff, so there's a lot of indigenous musics, and there's just a lot that you can listen to. And I think that the way the state has tried to harass musicians actually fostered their creativity in many ways. But I guess that happens in every authoritarian state. So there is just a lot to listen to, and I'm afraid that nobody will want to listen to it anymore. But... Um,
0: yeah. Yeah, I think that's a valid concern. There is a massive backlash against anything Russian. Yeah, Irrespective of whether it is linked to Putin or to the war. And obviously, this can strongly affect Russian artists, be that in music or outside. Much for coming on the show, Lisa. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you, Cass. You can follow Lisa Gaufman on Twitter at, at Lisa's underscore research. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Nuts with the classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall and I'm your host Kaz If you liked the episode please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice and don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way but I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain and before you call me it. Give me a chance to explain you. See, come up to Courtney Mill. He went with Danny Baker. See, you silly disco songs of reading Melody Baker. I see him down the bunk playing with his beard. No wonder that that's Capitano. Turns out a little weird.